Do you know what nemesis means? Hello and welcome to Direct, the podcast that takes a direct trajectory through a director's filmography. I'm Eric. I'm Levi. The Darjeeling Limited is the movie we watched this week. Levi, tell us about the Darjeeling Limited. A year after the death of their father, three brothers meet for a train trip across India. Francis the Eldest has organized it, Jack is estranged from his girlfriend, and Peter has left his pregnant wife at home. Amid foreign surroundings, can the brothers sort out their differences? Eric, I love you, but I'm going to mace you in the face. (laughs) what did you think of darjeeling limited so i feel my my feelings did not change about the darjeeling limited uh Mm -hmm. after this viewing and my feelings have changed about just about every movie that we've watched so far um you know it's no secret that going into this if you go back to our preview cast i thought that rushmore was my favorite wes anderson movie Mm -hmm. um then i watched the royal tenenbaums and then I watched The Life Aquatic again. Yeah. And basically every movie that we've watched so far, in my opinion, has been better than the last. But for some reason, the Darjeeling Limited does not put its hooks in me the way that something like Steve Zissou does. Did it, so I, did it's it still s- an enjoyable experience, and I like that mm-hmm. it's 90 minutes long. You know, it, goes, it clips by. Um, it's interesting. There's a lot of themes here. Uh, but it just doesn't quite hook me the same way that Steve Zissou or the Royal Tenenbaums or Rushmore or even Bottle Rocket quite did. Yeah. So it's where it's a, it feels like a breather. I really, I agree. The themes are strong. It's, uh, Wes Anderson's really hitting his favorite, his favorite themes. Uh, the style, the train, as a concept mm-hmm. and how we move through it is really well done, really makes yeah. for some fascinating cinematography. Uh, there's still the emotional, there's still some emotional moments that are, that struck me. Um, the kids falling into the river, the, the brothers fighting about getting the car to make it to their dad's funeral. Mm-hmm. Um, and that whole, the coming to understand one another over the time, I think was, Effective, I think Adrian yeah. Brody was an excellent addition to Wes Anderson's oh, yeah. collection of actors. Adrian uh, Brody's the type of guy that, like, you feel like he was always in Wes Anderson's movies. Yeah, right. Yep he he fits in really well and in a different niche. Wes Anderson is mm-hmm. very good about getting. We've got Bill Murray. He fits a great <laughs> role in the older man. Uh, he's a little bit reserved compared to younger bill murray we get jason schwartzman who plays uh very passionately in his roles um we get a you know max was a passionate kid who as the main focus was so intent on creating his own narrative and now we have jason schwartzman the writer who is mimicking the narrative that he is Mm -hmm. in Mm -hmm in a way that even he has is in some stage of denial constantly telling people you know <laughs> this is based on fic- all the characters are completely fictional right even though they're absolutely not um and, and even- that's a nice contrast from rushmore because in rushmore he was really living in kind of that fictional world i mean he mm-hmm. was doing serpico the play and he yeah. was doing 
basically, you know, um, Apocalypse Now, the play. And in this one, he only draws from reality. So that's kind of a nice contrast. Yeah. Ten years later. And that, that passion, he he plays it so well and watching these. And Owen Wilson, too, comes in and he is he is this energetic. He is Wes Anderson's prime confident buffoon. Uh, yes. He is the one that all other confident b- buffoons are based off <laughs> in a lot of ways, uh, yeah. whether that's how he writes um, or now at this point he has incepted Wes Anderson to the point that that's all <laughs> Wes Anderson can see when he closes his eyes. Yeah, uh, interesting stuff there because um, I don't mean to cut you off, but we, no. but, uh, we uh, Wes Anderson did a I think it was an old Navy commercial. Was mm-hmm. it, was it uh, Old Navy? H&M. Or was it H&M? Okay. Buzz Marketing. Classy Old Navy. Um, <laughs> so he did an H&M commercial, which is interesting. And I, I think it's something that I really want to keep an eye out now because I know that a train plays in heavily in uh, Grand Budapest Hotel. And this was really his, I think his first foray into trains and movies was this one. I can't really recall a train in a prior Wes Anderson film. But no. after this, a lot of trains, and, and the H&M commercial, which you can go online and watch, and it stars Adrian Brody, mm-hmm. it takes place on a train. We get a similar tracking shot where we see all of the train compartments and what's happening in each of them. So that's interesting. But then aside from that, um, somebody posted that on the forums, and it was we were very grateful for that, forums.bobloop.com. Uh, so we could have a conversation about that H&M commercial, which was recently made. But then Davey Mack posted a American Express commercial that stars Wes Anderson. <laughs> and if you watch that commercial, Wes Anderson is playing that confident buffoon character. Mm-hmm. And the thing that I didn't really insert into the confident buffoon, and we might have to change the archetype name, because they're not only a confident buffoon, but they're a leader. People follow the confident buffoon. Yes, in all of these movies. Mm-hmm. And so let me let me just uh, go back, just in case uh, you know the listener hasn't heard all of our prior ones. But this confident buffoon archetype, this is what I'm calling him, and maybe it's maybe it's now the confident leader, um, or the buffoon leader, or something like that. <laughs> um, it starts off with Dignan, mm-hmm. who's played by Owen Wilson in Bottle Rocket. It goes to Max, who is played by Jason Schwartzman in Rushmore. Then it goes to Royal in The Royal Tenenbaums, who's played by Gene Hackman. And then it goes to um, to Steve in Steve Zissou. Uh, and that's obviously played by Bill Murray. In this one, it is completely embodied, again, by Owen Wilson in his character. And it just made me... For some reason, I was associating this movie. I got such a vibe from this movie around Bottle Rocket. I feel like Bottle Rocket and the Darjeeling Limited are companion pieces in some ways. Yeah. Uh, Owen Wilson's performance, the character. Mm-hmm. And in this one, I think the reason I don't have the same difficulty I did with Dignan is that Owen Wilson's motivations are, are family-oriented. They're they're much more uh, <laughs> kind hearted. You know, yeah. he wants to, he's the older brother. And at some point he, he mutters the line, I raised us. And then we meet Didn't Angelica I? Houston he later on. And she was 
an awful mother. I mean, right. competing with uh, Betty from Mad Men for worst mother of all time. <laughs> uh, and it was... And so there was an earnestness. And the fact that he over-controls, but you understand why. I don't know if maybe right. that's what allows me to let go a little bit and to watch him without uh, some mm. sort of spite mm. for his actions that he's trying to he's just trying to keep his brothers together and they all they all suffer from these really dark passions whether it's uh jason schwartzman's ex-girlfriend or adrian brody Mm -hmm. the loss of their father has obviously weighed very heavily on him because he is so attached to uh to their father and there's really heavy imagery at times i agree i think davy mack also post, pointed that out in the forums that, you know, with the luggage, they're carrying their father's luggage around. But Adrian mm-hmm. Brody has glass prescription sunglasses right. from his father that he can't see through, right. but he and wears through headaches. half the movie. Yeah. And yeah, that's... it's giving him headaches. He literally can't. It's literally debilitating him. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, his brother is jealous of these debilitating sunglasses. Um you know, you can't just take everything that's dad's and claim it as your own. These belong to everybody. The idea that how absurd it is, right, to share a pair of sunglasses amongst <laughs> brothers. Mm-hmm. Um, and prescription sunglasses at that, right? It, it breeds to this, to this greater thing that everybody's trying to grasp at an identity with their father. But the very interesting thing here, we get a couple of glimpses here. Um, you mentioned it at the first dinner that we have um, with all of them when they're in a dining car. And they're all just kind of having these, like, concurrent conversations with themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, nobody's really listening to the other person, but they're pseudo-listening and they're conjecturing and they're jumping in and they're changing the subject and all of this. Um, one of the things that comes up is that Owen Wilson's character says, I raised this, didn't I? And the two brothers kind of say silent at that, which is a tacit agreement, in my opinion, mm-hmm. in that there was a understanding that these guys were kind of set off to fend for themselves. It tells us something about the their relationship with their father, um, with that aligns very closely to the father type relationships that are conveyed in Wes Anderson movies in general, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, they tend to be distant. They tend to be there for the good times and they're absent for the bad times, that sort of thing. Right. Yeah. It's, and we talked about this as well, the mm-hmm. with Royal, especially I think, and I think it's easy because of these character archetypes that Anderson turns to, that we can begin projecting a little bit onto their father. Their father was probably a royal or Zisu-like figure right. in that they... I think he's royal. I think he basically is royal. Yeah, and that's really... Right. Destru- you get to see uh-huh. the destructive side of that. What happens when he dies before he makes amends with his family. Totally. That's really interesting. Mm-hmm. That's interesting to see this. Because I was, I was comparing this kind of the... Uh, bottle rocket, and that's the cockamamie scheme, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's the emotionally stunted, um, the emotionally stunted guy. So I feel like Luke Wilson's character correlates very in in Bottle Rocket correlates very strongly to Adrian Brody's character in this movie. Kind of these like stunted, numb people, mm-hmm. and then I feel like not on a complete degree, but. 
you know, somebody who's just kind of along for the ride in some ways and is completely focused on something else, really. Yeah. I can't remember his name, but it was the rich guy, right? In, yeah, in it, was their other, it was the third guy. The third guy. Yeah. And he kind of correlates to Jason Schwartzman character, and then Dignan correlates to Owen Wilson, Owen Wilson to Owen Wilson, right? Yeah. <laughs> but I do think that's a very, very good point, though, Levi, is that this movie could also be a corollary to the Royal Tenenbaums in that this is the Royal Tenenbaums without the catharsis and the resolution that they have with their father in the Royal Tenenbaums. Yeah, and even Angelica Houston in some ways mm-hmm. yeah. plays a similar character. It, in yeah. Royal Tenenbaums, she wasn't a doting mother. She was mm-hmm. somewhat semi-present, uh, but she was never... She never saved them from themselves. You know, she wasn't able to do that heavy lifting on her own. And this one, she is totally absent uh, until confronted, in which point she takes on, she has these odd motherly moments and then she vanishes again as quickly. And that ruse that you feel uh, is really painful. It really was one of the most memorable movements. Going into this movie, it was the scene that I dreaded because it's painful to watch and to know you know these guys are adults but they have so much baggage from childhood that they were never able to escape and it's the sort of thing that when you have decent parents looking from the outside in it's it's a struggle to to relate without it being it's kind of scary you know to know that that truly affects some people in the world. Yeah, I'm, I think that... I'm, I'm going to challenge you a little bit on the absent mother thing, though. Because mm-hmm. I think that she became absent. But I, I do think there might be a correlation here. Because if you remember... I can't remember what her name was. But in the Royal Tenenbaums, Angelica Houston's character in the Royal Tenenbaums, mother figure. Mm-hmm. She was a very controlling parent. She was... She homeschooled all of her kids. You know, it was... She had completely control over the situation. Um, and, and she knew them, she knew them in and out. Uh, I wonder if Angelica Houston's character in this maybe had that type of relationship with these three boys, Mm -hmm. but then drifted further away, possibly driven away by their father and then driven away by possibly the shame of maybe, uh, abandoning the children. Well, and and the reason why I say that, mm -hmm. the reason why I say that is because, yeah, uh, Owen Wilson does say, hey, I raised this, did, didn't, didn't I kind of raise this? Mm-hmm. But at the beginning of the movie, he does, he go he runs through the, he runs through the, um, he runs through the three things. He's like, okay, I want to do three things on this trip. I want to like, remember that we're brothers. I want to explore the unknown and I want to say yes to anything. Mm-hmm. And then when he's at, at the, at the first, what is it, dinner? He orders food for everybody. You're going to get the chicken. You're going to get the lamb. You're going to get the, the what is it, beef or turkey or whatever it is. Yeah. Wouldn't be beef. It's, it's fish. In India, but it was... Yeah, it's fish. Um, but, uh, and then what do you want? Do you want the cookies? Do you want the blah, 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 blah. And then when we go to the mon- uh, the nunnery, the mother does the same thing. She does the ABC. Hey, guys, while we're here, you know, I want us to enjoy each other's company. I want us to stop... Uh, feeling sorry for ourselves because it's unattractive, and then I want us to plan for the future. And then she also orders them all breakfast without really asking what they want. They do the hand-raising thing. So you understand that Owen Wilson learned all of this behavior from watching his mother. So I feel like at some point there was a nurturing relationship there, and she was the authority figure, 
in that relationship. And that's where Owen Wilson learned how to be a leader was from his mother, not from his father. I think we can infer that from the subtext in those two scenes. I think you're right. And there was an additional line. They they go after their mother because she vanished at the death of their father, mm-hmm. um, which doesn't necessarily... I think you're right. We put a lot mm. onto Owen Wilson's statement that I raised us, but yeah. the evidence to the contrary is that her real absence has come after the death of their father. And in the movie, yeah. we see that they're obviously adults when that occurs. So yeah, the relationship's not hundred percent clear, but I think you're right in that Owen Wilson might be assuming a lot of responsibility that maybe was not true. And while the brothers tacitly agree in their mm-hmm. silence is also the non-recognition of how successful right. he was. They didn't say, yes, right. you did a thank you you know, you did a great job, <laughs> which is what he's looking, what he's fishing for. Um, yeah. But they do have to acknowledge that he was probably a strong influence at the very least. So yeah. it's it's a really interesting family, and there's a lot of complexity that uh, Wes Anderson's able to cram into 90 minutes. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's a fast film, man. Um, but at the same time, I feel like. In going through this journey and watching Wes Anderson's movies in order, you cannot ignore the rep- repetition of themes throughout these movies. And maybe this is why Darjeeling Limited doesn't land quite as high on my list as the previous movies. I, I still think it probably comes in above Bottle Rocket, mm-hmm. but I, I can't put it above Rushmore, Royal Tenenbaums, or Steve Zissou at this point. And the reason why is because the themes are really rehashed at this point. Yeah. Um, and I, I, maybe that's not the reason why, but it's a reason why, right? It loses some potency um, in the repetition. It does. I mean, okay, we de- we're dealing with the death of a parent. Mm-hmm. Plot of Rushmore. Yeah. You know, we're dealing with the death of a friend, Steve Zissou. Uh, there's an attempted suicide that's that's talked about. Owen Wilson, we find out that he actually attempted suicide. That's where the car accident happened where he got his face smashed Yeah, he up. drove it into the side he of the hill. He drove a motorcycle into a hillside. We have an attempted suicide in the Royal Tenenbaums. Uh, we have, uh, you know, he told me that he was his favorite from Adrian Brody in this movie. We have, uh, I believe, and I'm, I'm going off of memory here, so it may be a little foggy, but I believe that Royal said that Owen Wilson's son character was his favorite. Wasn't it Luke? At you mean Luke point. Wilson? Luke Wilson, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's uh, almost almost explicit, if not. I, I think he said it at some point. Yeah. Like, there was some point where he said, like, he, he told me he was his favorite or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so the themes are really starting to get repetitive. And you start to understand that... Uh, that Owen, uh, Owen Wilson, <laughs> that Wes Anderson is using these as a structure for drama, mm-hmm. um, and he does have a he has a couple new writing partners for this one. This one I think was co-written by Roman Coppola yep. and Jason Schwartzman. Mm-hmm. Um, he I I really find it very intriguing that Wes Anderson co-writes his movies with Owen Wilson or with Noah Baumbach or in this case with a couple of new writers. And I'm just wondering, maybe we're revisiting the themes, but we're not doing it in a new enough way that watching these films back to back makes this movie stand out. Because I feel like all of these themes have been semi-explored. Mm-hmm. The one that hasn't, I feel like, is the idea of brotherhood. Uh, 
which I've I've read some essays, have watched some um, some videos online about how this is talking about the communication of families. But I feel like that stuff was covered in Royal Tenenbaum. So I think that's kind of if I had to pinpoint the reason why this movie doesn't land as high in my list, I think we're starting to rehash some themes here. Yeah, he and when you when you see the themes. The style starts to take over, and then you're like, "Oh, this is really Wes Anderson-y, as opposed yeah, to re- a really good story." We're right? in for. I think what's nice is that next we have Fantastic Mr. Fox, and then Moonrise Kingdom, and mm-hmm. then uh, Grand Budapest, and I think those are all Moonrise Kingdom. Yeah, comes back a little bit into the territory, but I think one of the reasons that Grand Budapest is mm. so well received is that. It while it has inklings of these themes, that is not the central theme. Um, and I'm trying to kind of remember yeah. what it really revolves around. But it's well, I, I'm interested to see that because I watched Grand Budapest. I know we're deferring right now off of Darjeeling, but mm-hmm. I feel like as as kind of the the pivot film in his filmography at this point, the it warrants this kind of discussion mm-hmm. because, like I said, the themes start to repeat. Right? Yeah. Um, I haven't seen Fantastic Mr. Fox, so this is the only Wes Anderson movie I've never seen. So I'm excited to watch that next week. Um, when I watched Moonrise Kingdom, I hated it. I I literally loathed that movie. <laughs> um, but was it very? But I am curious to see if it was for thematic reasons. Um, yeah, I know I struggled with it as well, but for a more it's the psychology of the smart young kid is just a little bit too much yeah i hate the precarious young wiser than everyone child character Mm -hmm. it's i feel like it's really contrived in cinema yeah um but you're right this is this is the rehash uh i think wes anderson is okay to include these themes but at this point his central focus has been on uh family in one sense or of another and uh Matt Zollersites has a really good – he does all of the, the Wes Anderson films for the Criterion Collection, and they've got them up on mm. Vimeo. Um, mm-hmm. He really focuses on this as being the the theme of the control freak narrative, and that's yep. really a central theme in all of them. That is the Dignans, yeah. the Max. That's Dignan, man. That is our confident buffoon um, is this control freak. I mean, Max is the control freak mm-hmm. in Rushmore, yes. right? To the yeah, he's president of every club, but he's president of every club, and he controls the dean of the school <laughs> from preventing him from being expelled because he doesn't give a shit about academics. Yeah, it's yeah. And when we get to this, I, the control freak theme exists, but it is it is not central, and it's I think that's the other themes need to sort of be used in a similar way in that they are character momentum but they're not necessarily the central theme and i think the central theme in this movie while being brotherhood is too close to royal tenenbaums too close to zisu um and too close to rushmore in these notions of of family we've seen it now and we've seen it yeah. too many times in suggestion in well, and succession I, would, I might i might argue as well that it's been done better like I by Wes uh, Anderson or by Wes Anderson. Mm. Um, one of the things that really, and I want to preclude this, by the way, because I want to finish my thought here, mm-hmm. is that I loved Grand Budapest. 
I loved that movie so much. I walked out of the theater, I was blown away. <laughs> and I was and I was reaffirmed because I'm a big Wes Anderson film and Wes Anderson fan and uh and I didn't like Moonrise Kingdom at all and I know I'm, I might be in the minority on that. That's the thing about these movies is that Wes Anderson has a way of kind of touching a generation. I feel like he has a way of speaking to a certain age group. And I've, I've, I've heard this argument before that Wes Anderson movies touch you because of when you viewed them. Mm-hmm. And so maybe I'm just too old for Moonrise, Moonrise Kingdom. Oh. But I, I had an intern over the summer, and, uh, and he was like a, a film guy. And so when I was interviewing him, I was like, so who are some of your favorite directors? And he was like talking about some of his favorite directors, favorite directors. And he talked about Wes Anderson. Mm-hmm. And he said... You know, Wes Anderson's kind of an indie guy, but he's, you know, really blown up, uh, you know, post Moonrise Kingdom. And, and I was, I, it was, it was a, it was a landmark moment for me because it was a moment when I realized I'm dealing with a generation who's younger than me, uh-huh. <laughs> uh, <laughs> working with a generation who's younger than me, which is a funny experience to go through because if I were his age, I'd be like, oh yeah, Wes Anderson, you know, is kind of under the radar, but he's really blown up since the Royal Tenenbaums. Mm-hmm. You know, that was my experience. Yeah. So maybe Moonrise Kingdom speaks to a younger generation, and maybe it just doesn't speak to me. And and I'm also interested to watch it again in context to all of his other films. But having said that, it's the same type of thing. I've watched some things with Darjeeling Limited, and there are people who really think that this movie is very poignant and very strong and very interesting. And I'm I'm almost wondering if maybe Wes Anderson is most powerful the first time you see him. That could... Definitely be true. I've seen it with other film series where the first one you mm-hmm. come into is the one you latch on to. Mm-hmm. Um, and absolutely, uh, you'll never get over that first because there are such powerful scenes in Wes Anderson and because he does play on emotions so effectively. Um, yeah. I think the first time he hits you, it's a, it's a blind side. Going into Moonrise Kingdom, you and I both know exactly what we're looking for in yeah. a Wes Anderson film, and so we are not caught off guard by it. Um, and so we're probably not; it's probably not sticking with us as long, uh, and maybe covering up some of the deficiencies. I think Darjeeling Limited yeah. was uh, probably the third Wes Anderson film I saw, and so I remember at the time being into it, thinking it was a good Wes Anderson film. I think now that we're watching it in succession, I'm certainly not as impressed with it. Um, but I still think it's effective. I still I can't it's, it's very get past that yeah. watching Owen Wilson go, look at these assholes as the kids <laughs> go into the water. The kids and, die. As one of them is about to die. Yeah. and But the yeah. way that they, they jump to, that scene goes from right. the goofiness of the rest of the film to serious. And that's how the brothers... Mm-hmm kind of operate and there's i'm trying to think of what the uh, there was another time in the movie where they jump to when it comes to it like when the guy gets out of the car the tow truck when they're trying to get their dad's car out of the garage and yeah he gets out to fight them and the way that they just snap into line in a way that we don't see anywhere else in the movie um it shows that that bond that is still there. It's just mm-hmm. covered up with all of this emotional baggage. Um, and the way that 
when they pull the kids from the river and Adrian Brody says, I didn't save mine. And you understand that even though this is a dead child, which is Guillermo del Toro's thing, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> it, that they still can't remove themselves from the brotherhood and comparing themselves to one another. And the fact that you know, there are three yeah. kids and they each kind of take one as a, a measure. Um, but they take one as a measure, but it's interesting that Adrian Brody's is the one who dies because I think in some ways, Adrian Brody's character is still the one who's most affected by the father's death. Mm-hmm. I think that Owen Wilson is, and I don't remember any of their names. That's why I prefer. I know. I gotta see the actors. They don't use their own. They're all the Whitmans, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but Owen Wilson's character is really, he's trying to embody that mother role. And we see that. We see it when he goes to the nunnery and he mimics, we understand that he's mimicking the, um, the actions of his mother. And so we know he's trying to fill that. He's trying to bring the the clan back together. Jason Schwartzman character is completely moved on, in my opinion. I mean, he's just trying to find love wherever he can. Mm-hmm. He's preoccupied with finding with with filling the void within himself with another person. And I think that you could say he's preoccupied with the current woman he's with, but I would say he's just trying to fulfill himself via any woman who's around, which is why we see his relationship with Rita in this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I mean, there's such an interesting scene, right, where when they get kicked off the train and he talks to Rita and she's weeping um, because I think in some ways she saw Jason Schwartzman's character as her way off the goddamn train. She needs to get off this fucking train, man. Yeah. Uh, she's trapped. She's trapped. She's trapped in a relationship. She's trapped on the train. Um, she's, she's a nomad, you know, wandering the earth. She finds this guy who says, I think you're really important in my life right now. Um, there's hope there. And then she sees him outside. And then Jason Schwartzman looks at her and says, thank you for using me. And at that moment, she's like, fuck you, man. You used me. Yeah. You used me. I didn't use you. You used me, asshole. Um, and coming to the realization there. like, th- like So Jason Schwartzman is completely preoccupied with that. Yeah. He's- uh, Adrian Brody's character, on the other hand, is totally enraptured in, this, in his father's death and has not processed it. Is wearing the clothes of his father is wearing the prescription sunglasses is shaving with his razor. Um, and so when his kid dies, I feel like that is a very cathartic moment in the movie because that's him processing, allowing him processing the death of the child to allow him to process the death of his father. Yeah. It's a odd way to break kind of that emotional log jam and it's really complex mm-hmm. because he's also mm-hmm. having a child so now we're dealing mm-hmm. with kind of this intergenerational i've lost my father uh, which yeah. i can't process i'm having a yeah. baby which i can't process but the death of the child and in some ways the i really appreciate and i wonder how much the choice of india was based in the mm-hmm. the funeral rites that we mm. we see which are very distinct compared to the states like you see the brothers wearing all black you know getting their father's car to get to the funeral whereas the 
in the Indian funeral rites, they're wearing all white, and it's the father is bathing his dead son, uh, you know, the funeral, and then everybody, the community going into the water to wash off in kind of this group cleansing um, mm. from the from the the cremation. Uh, it's yeah. all really powerful stuff, and it really, the way that you address death culturally is very distinct and so in some ways i wonder if that was part of the reason for choosing india was to see that alternate to how you you say goodbye yeah i i'm with you i think that that's a big that's a big part of it right is that once he sees the child die and he sees the father processing that he goes into that house and he hangs out with those two grandparents and their baby he's got this baby on his lap Mm mm-hmm he understands that uh, – I feel like there's an understanding there that he gets, right? It's it's less about the sacrifices of the parent and more about the sacrifices of the child. There's something about the being – understanding the importance of being the child as opposed to being the parent. Mm. Like, I mean, I can't – really empathize with this because i'm not a father yet but you are mm-hmm. i'm sure at any point in your life you would give whatever it takes for your son right yeah so there's there's an understanding there that as the son you are uh you are the special one you are the you are the reason for the season my friend <laughs> well <laughs> you know yeah and it goes back to we got deep into this about the the notions of immortality and wanting to mm-hmm. be remembered, and you right. very distinctly pointed out, uh, and it's been kind of rattling around with me that it does the there's a peace in letting go of that in mm-hmm. realizing that your mm-hmm. legacy doesn't you do not need a legacy you do not have to have your name remembered by history right. and it won't be remembered for all of history, uh, and I think the addition to that statement is that the most important thing is who knows you now in a very deep sense who thinks of you um and it's it's always family and that's why wes anderson cobbles together these strange relationships in a lot of Mm -hmm. different uh contexts because it's who remember he focuses on who is it that's thinking of these other people? And Grand Budapest is, I think, kind of the the apex of where this reaches non-family family, uh, the unrelated mm. family um, that exists in this hotel and among friends and such. Um, yeah. That might be one of the reasons why I like Steve Zissou so much, though. Yeah, it's got a similar. It's a similar a similar theme. It's that it's similar, but it's not. I mean, I guess. The the crew of the of the of the what is the name of the ship? The Belafonte. The, the Belafonte. The crew of the Belafonte are not by any means admirable men. <laughs> <laughs> they're a rogues they're gallery for sure. They're 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 borderline pirates. <laughs> uh, you know. But at the same time, they are like 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 Bill Murray's character says in the movie. Steve Zissou says, you know, they're the they're the island of misfit toys. They are the they're just a band of misfits, and there's something really beautiful about that. I think one of the things I don't like about this movie, and I'd like to touch on it here, um, is these guys are fucking assholes. All three of them are assholes. <laughs> yeah. And the thing about this movie is that 
this is a love letter. I mean, I'm sure that Wes Anderson went to India mm-hmm. and fell in love with the country and said, I need to make a movie about this country. And then he made a movie about the country through the lens of three fucking assholes. It's kind of an idiot's you know? abroad, for sure. It It's an idiot's abroad, but even the idiot abroad has some kind of empathy for the human beings around. Like, there's just... <laughs> Like, they go to the most sacred site in India, and then they are, you know, um, bartering for shoes or pepper spray or a cobra, and they're just tourists, mm-hmm. man. They're just tourists. And one of the things I that I think rubs me the wrong way about this movie is the way that they don't have any fucking regard at all for the local culture. They go to this very beautiful place, a very spiritual place, on a spiritual journey, and all of them are bought into that spiritual journey on a different level, admittedly, but they don't allow themselves to be enraptured until the funeral. I I mean, I'm trying to come to grips with this, because about halfway through the movie, I was like, this is a love letter to India through the eyes of a white dude. Mm -hmm. Like, There's something that's very different about this movie, and even even a movie like Slumdog Millionaire, which... Sure is like a very commercial movie, but it's done by, um, you know, it's done by, uh, God, what's it, Danny Boyle, mm-hmm. who's uh, a, a pretty good director. We should definitely put him on the list for a future direct. Yeah. But that movie is India through the eyes of an Indian person. I, it just kind of sucks that I, I want to go, man. I want to go to India. I want to go on a train trip. But I don't want to be these guys on the train trip. Yeah. You know? <laughs> It's so it's hard to come to grips with that a little bit. Maybe that's one of the reasons why this movie doesn't sit as well with me. It's a complex relationship and I I agree that watching these three assholes bring a poisonous snake onto a train and then mm-hmm. shit talk the uh one of the employees of the train for getting rid yeah. of their poisonous their super poisonous snake. Right. Uh, it is. It's really. It's it's offensive. I think it's thankfully written to be that way. It's explicit that they are all jerks, yeah. uh, but it doesn't remove the the trouble of having to sit there and watch them be this culturally insensitive. And that's always the problem. Yeah. As people who have traveled internationally, it sucks when you right. watch people do things like this, and you stand there and go, "No, you're ruining this yeah. for the rest of us." But I'm sure we're doing things in our own way, (laughs) too, that we're screwing up um, and offending people. And there's something about that, right? Because if the Royal Tenenbaums go abroad, they're going to be these people. Mm -hmm. Steve Zissou, not exactly the most culturally sensitive person you could ever be in your life. You know, these characters are not unique in that. They're just thrown into a foreign setting, so we get to see their assholery in the foreign setting. You know, Mm -hmm. I mean, when I was in Japan... um, you know, we tried to go to as many places that were just normal places that Japanese people went. Mm-hmm. We and we love that. And then the last night we were there, we went to this robot. It's, it's very famous. It's uh, a yeah, robot I've heard cabaret. about it. Yeah, which is like super crazy. It's awesome. Like if that was in Las Vegas, it'd be sold out every night. It's an amazing <laughs> show. It is incredible. But we go in there and it's literally all tourists, and we just we're just like God, oh, God damn it, we're in the wrong place, <laughs> man. We are in the wrong place, you know. Like we should be. You should, you should, I, I, there's something about it that I'm just like you got to experience the culture, right? Yeah. 
um, as much as you can as a foreigner. There's there's always a barrier there as a foreigner in a foreign land. Yeah, but it's difficult. You have to know somebody yeah. there to really get past that. And we see a little, in an odd way, that's what we get with the funeral and the the yeah, brothers exactly. being the invite, funeral, invited yeah. to it. They were ready to leave town, and then they are invited in. And I don't think that that's that's a theme that Wes Anderson has really dug into yet. And I think he could. Yeah. I think this moment of touching on it is really interesting. The idea of being accepted and then participating mm-hmm. in a culture versus yeah. this, and and maybe it is, now that I'm thinking about it, like the pre the rest of the movie is them trying to co-opt this culture in an effort to oh, find totally. it is the white man seeking mysticism in the east it's yeah. the old yep. kind of racist doctor strange yep. and when they finally save these kids and lose one and then are accepting the culture that's when they're not assholes that's when they're mm. quiet and they right. observe and they receive and adrian brody most of all receives some mm-hmm. level of healing peace yeah there's a peace associated with that that's totally true and i we can't ignore the correlation here between the child's funeral and the father's funeral in this movie mm-hmm. um you know it, it literally jump cuts yeah. <laughs> right directly to the father's funeral um i believe that happens right before the child's funeral I'm remembering correctly, because um, it happens when they're on the bus right before they get in. Yes, that's right. They get on the bus. They have that yeah. moment of them trying to get the car and then pushing the car back well, in. Well, and there's a tacit understanding here that they miss their father's funeral. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, in some ways, going to this child's funeral is experiencing their father's funeral, which gives them catharsis. Yeah. Um. It's they need yeah. they need that moment and. Mm-hmm. Maybe, and maybe it could have been any other culture. They could have been in Japan. They could have been in uh, somewhere in Africa. Yeah. They maybe yeah. they just need to experience a funeral, and the most mm-hmm. uh, profound way of doing that is somewhere else, experiencing a different culture's like, acceptance yeah. of loss. Um, well, and there's a t- there's also the beautiful scene with the father bathing himself, and he almost passes out. Yeah. Right. Um, and he just goes into the water and he's overcome with grief. Mm-hmm. And there's an understanding there from the three brothers that they don't understand that grief, right? Yeah. And maybe that goes back to what I'm talking about, is that this this idea of legacy in that, you know, I don't, you know, sadly, I don't know my great-great-great-grandfather's name. Mm-hmm. I don't know what he did. I don't know what he was, where he's from, you know? Yeah. But if I had to look down the line and my great, great, great grand grandson, I don't give a shit if he knows who I am. I just, have a, I just give a shit if he, if he has a, you know, a good life, mm-hmm. if he's, if he's got the chances that he needs to succeed. Right. Um, there's something really beautiful in them processing the death of their father through the death of a child and then seeing that death of a child through the eyes of the father. Well, by not, yeah. and in your hope that, you know, your great great grandchild has a good life. You are one that's a that's a good selfless emotion and at the same time you're also it avoids the great flaw that Wes Anderson loves and that's the control freak. The control freak is trying right. to 
extend their reach as far as humanly possible. And if you can achieve that intergenerational control, I mean, that's Game of Thrones has whole characters dedicated to that idea of I am setting up a legacy so that everybody looks at my painting on the wall when that was a thing. It still is a thing for some people. I want my painting on the wall and people go, man, that guy was a badass. Yeah. So that's it. I, yeah, like I remember going to Windsor Castle and seeing Henry VIII's armor, and he had such severe syphilis that the codpiece <laughs> on his armor was ballooned out so that they could stuff it with cotton <laughs> to support his swollen loins. Right? Yeah. Like, is that really the legacy? (laughs) Or like when you go to like museums and you see paintings from those times, it's like that dude doesn't look healthy. That's not, that is not what we now assume is a healthy feature. That pale, pale, pale skin. That's no, no good. Yeah. There's immense, there's immense beauty in, understanding that each second on this earth we're just riding the wave of eternity here guys we are just present in this moment and making the most of that is true beauty in some ways maybe that's the central message because i've talked about it before i mean i'm getting this message from from wes Mm -hmm. on this role right yeah and that's and i like that this movie sure i didn't think it was maybe as entertaining as Steve Zissou of the Royal Tenenbaums of Rushmore, but I like that this movie is helping us continue that conversation because maybe we're getting to a deeper theme here with Wes Anderson. I think it's really beneficial to watch his movies back-to-back like this because it does reaffirm those central tenets. And I think he he uses these very literal things like carrying around your father's baggage. But, yeah. you know, he's... And, like you've said before, he's simple. He uses, he's very, there's a simplicity in his work and that belies this really strong undercurrent that I think we're talking about. And to what degree that's intentional on his part that he, he play it again and again to get it across, or maybe it's just his most interesting. There are artists who, you know, really have a style or a medium, uh, they have reoccurring themes because it's important to them. And I think we have to be reminded every now and again, and Wes Anderson's perfect for it, that film is an art. And he is, in a lot of ways, his own control freak. Uh, He is the confident buffoon, if you believe his American Express commercial. (laughs) I know. (laughs) Watch. I really, really recommend people go watch that American Express commercial. It will take you a minute. Yep. It's but you you could correlate that directly. It's Max, dude. It's it's Steve Zissou. Mm-hmm. Like really, it's Max and Steve Zissou kind of wrapped in the one character, and you you get a be- better understanding of it when you watch it and you and you watch it in context to all these movies. Is that oh he's playing this character that he's written so many times, and I like that he allows to have he allows us to have the a- a- extra voice, right? Mm-hmm. Come into this in that. You have Noah Baumbach come in. You have Owen Wilson come in. You have Roman Coppola and and Jason Schwartzman come in. And they allow some sort of creative... Like, he needs somebody to bounce ideas on, mm-hmm. right? 
Well, and that's how, that's and how he, where he started. And when you start that way and yeah. see success, you want to keep it. You continue to find these people who who share yeah. a vision with you. Well, and there's something really beautiful, by the way, about Wes Anderson discovering Jason Schwartzman and then 10 years later making a movie mm-hmm. co-written by Jason yeah. Schwartzman. Co-written by Max, right? <laughs> that, that's kind of, there's something really beautiful. Yeah, that, it's you know? poetic. Uh, um, I do want to talk a little bit, too, about this ambiguous rich asshole. <laughs> because we've we brought it up before. Uh-huh. Um, I think Steve Zissou is the only guy that we've talked about on this movie. I mean, other than Dignan and the, and the idiots. Yeah. Um, although one of the idiots was independently wealthy, mm-hmm. but um, but really, like this this idea of this kind of rich archetype, and we saw it really strongly in the Royal Tenenbaums. Everybody's nice and well off. Mm-hmm. They have this beautiful brownstone in the middle of New York City. Um, sure, Royal is now broke, but everybody else is doing fine. Yeah. Um, in this one, though, I feel like we take it to the next level. And maybe this is another reason why I, it, it's uneasy, right? It's because these guys are complete jerks. They're smoking on a train when, they, when they're told not to smoke. And we get the smoking motif. Yeah. I didn't. I did not realize how much Wes Anderson has his character smoke. Everybody smokes. And, although somebody is, pointed out that, mm-hmm. and maybe it was... In a video that I watched, nobody actually smokes. Everybody holds a cigarette to their mm. mouth, lights mm. a cigarette, but supposedly nobody is actually, like, committing the act of smoking. Hmm. Which is... I don't know. I feel like Gwyneth Paltrow and Royal Tenet Bobs is really smoking. I'm going to have to go back and... She was taking drinks. And they were right? saying that it was for Darjeeling Limited, so maybe this is the only movie where uh, he does that weird... Well, yeah. Yeah, I mean, Jason Schwartzman's character likes to hang a cigarette out of his mouth to look cool. Yeah. Which could be a byproduct of maybe him living in Paris or something. <laughs> um, I think it's just a worldly thing. It's that, you know, everywhere yeah. but the U.S. smokes and is cool with it at this point. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. Yeah. Um, so you have the smoking. You have the casual drug use. Which yeah. You definitely saw in Life Aquatic. It's not casual. I mean, These guys were. <laughs> constant but they're but it's funny that they each have their own way of doing yeah it, right <laughs> passing um, it around they're passing it around you know jason swirst was on the cough syrup uh owen wilson's on the opiate drops mm-hmm. which are super potent <laughs> and then um and then uh you know adrian brody's on the just the regular pills the muscle relaxer mm-hmm. pills which are what i would equate to ibuprofen right yeah so that's interesting too. I mean, if you look at that, you have somebody on muscle relaxers, but on a on a light muscle relaxer, and I don't think he really takes them throughout the whole film because he starts sharing with the opiates. <laughs> um, and then Jason Schwartzman's on cough medicine, which you know can be a hallucinogenic. So maybe there's something about their characters, right? In this, in that, uh, Adrian Brody's trying to take the weak shit so that he can feel the pain. Um, Owen Wilson's trying to take this the strong shit so that he can focus on the what's important, <laughs> and Jason Schwartzman's just trying to you know disassociate from reality. Yeah, there's definitely something intentional in that each choice of mm-hmm. each drug. Yeah, but also like Owen Wilson shares. He's he's the. <laughs> 
He's got everybody on the on the little hamster feeder yeah. taking the drop, right? <laughs> so he's uh, he's got the strong shit, but at the same time, he's being judicious on how it's dispensed or something. I, you know, putting it in people's drinks that seems like a recipe for disaster. But who knows? Yeah. Man. And early on, he points. He says something about only one drop. Is all any more than one yeah. drop in here? But then every time they put over a glass, it's like bleh, pipette whole thing <laughs> into the drink. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like how yeah. even there's even some hypocrisy in when he's giving uh, Jason Schwartzman shit for it's a dumb way to get loaded. Um, yeah, when they're and then all you, and then you go to the windowsill and there's three bottles of the cough syrup, so you know that they've all been taking the coating. Yeah, yeah, they're an interesting, they're an interesting group, and their vices are parallel but not identical. Um, right, which I really I it's. It's the brothers mechanism, and I think you're right mm-hmm. in that you see in their actions every time Owen Wilson goes, let's look at the itinerary. Adrian Brody vanishes mm-hmm. almost every time for that, whereas Jason yeah. Schwartzman always will sidle up and look, even though we know he's so deep into uh, Natalie Portman or whoever, Rita. Um, yeah. He's so much. Did you watch Hotel Chevalier? I've seen it before. I didn't watch it actually prior to this, but it's on like Vimeo or yeah. something. Maybe you can yep. watch it anywhere. I went and pulled uh, it up and it's I mean, I like it. I like that train sequence and you see Natalie Portman and if you hadn't seen the short, you'd be like, "What the hell?" Yeah. I there um, was a quote at some point where I was watching an interview with him and he said that the movie that Darjeeling Limited, you know, wouldn't make sense if you hadn't seen Hotel Chevalier, which I strongly disagree with i think that jason schwartzman more than conveys this mystery girl that is haunting his experience but it's the tone of the short is distinctly darker than all of darjeeling limited even in darjeeling limited's dark even in royal tenenbaums when luke wilson commits suicide it's a bright scene. Uh, he's looking mm-hmm. in the mirror. The way that he's looking, we get the shot down. Oh, you just mean like dark from a lighting perspective? I'm talking dark. Even tone, like when he commits suicide, they play um, a, the Elliot Smith. They song. play the Elliot Smith song, which is not. Yeah. It's not somber. It's sad, but it's not somber. Right. Um, right. And Hotel Chevalier really felt somber in a lot of ways and i don't know that we've i think that zisu came close with the Mm -hmm. submarine moment Mm -hmm. because it is such a moment of emotional release Mm -hmm. in that film it's Mm -hmm. kind of this defeated moment um Mm -hmm. but hotel chevalier really has uh it's it's similar to the relationship with Rita, and I think that's why it's not necessary because we see how Jason Schwartzman interacts with women in such a destructive manner. Uh, we right. just get two destructive people in a room, um, and it was really it mm. felt distinct. I was really intrigued that Darjeeling Limited and the short go together when they don't. They don't feel quite the same, and maybe that's why they are yeah. so separated. I'll, I'll watch it again. I just didn't have a chance. But um, I, I do think that there's something about kind of the structure, right? I mean, I'm so grateful that we watched, that we're watching Wes Anderson. I really mm-hmm. am. 
I, I think that there's a subtext to his movies because Wes Anderson is a very, um, I mean, I go to Wes Anderson movies because they're Wes Anderson movies and I go to them for a different reason than I go to a Tarantino movie. Like I go to a Tarantino movie because it is stylized. It's fun. Um, it's, it's, there's, there's the Tarantino verse that, you know, kind of fits into this world. The Wes Anderson movies also do that. But I go into a Wes Anderson movie to learn something, and I go into a Tarantino movie to be entertained. Mm-hmm. Um, it, maybe that's I don't know. I'm I'm so interested in what happens when we watch the um, what is that movie I don't like? Moonrise Kingdom. Moonrise Kingdom. <laughs> I'm interested in seeing what what that will be like on a second viewing. Yeah. Um. It's yeah. Uh, it's been interesting, and we. We've gotten so deep into the the subtext and the characters mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. you know we really only ever glance off of his style and it's so distinct right. uh, and like I, I've said before we could do a three hour podcast where we go frame by frame talking <laughs> about how he sets up his shot how he uses color so well uh he really just has this. I want to do an entire podcast. I could honestly do an hour on how he uses Bill Murray. Because <laughs> we even even fucking talked about Bill Murray in this I movie. know. Look, look, we've got a few minutes left. Bill Murray is in this what movie. What the hell? Tell me your thoughts. I'm curious because I my grasp at straws seeing movie. him. Yeah, my, 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 my thoughts on Bill Murray in this movie. Bill Murray is the allegory for the father. Ah. In some ways, I think that Bill Murray is the father. Oh, that's why Adrian Brody looks so surprised looks when he at sees him. him. Yeah, looks at him as he's running by. In some ways, I think that Bill Murray is the father in this. Like he was on a business trip in. I mean, you look at you look at his luggage. He's he's got like the old seventies luggage. Mm-hmm. Um, he embodies the same mannerisms as the sons. Oh, that's my train. I have to run for it. It's the same. It's a book ending that happens in this movie. At the beginning, we see Bill Murray. That's my train. I have to go get it at the end of the movie. That's my train. I have to go get it. They, then they shed all of the stuff of their father. I feel like Bill Murray is the father figure in this movie. Yeah. But Bill Murray's the father figure in every movie, except for the Royal Ten of (laughs) In that one, he's just like the sad sack. (laughs) Like I, uh, Bill, I want to do a whole thing on Bill Murray because is he in, is he in, the rest of the movie? Yes, I believe he appears. Okay. He does a voice in Fantastic. I don't remember mm-hmm. where he shows up in Moonrise, uh, but I'm pretty uh-huh. sure he does. And then I think he has a cameo in Budapest, but I'm not positive about that one. He's maybe that's our epilogue cast. It's we've already it's a Bill Murray <laughs> we'll just talk about Bill Murray. Yeah. That'll fill it. That'll be all the time we have. Yeah, he's in Grand Grand Budapest Hotel. Uh, He's in Fantastic Mr. Fox, and he's in Moonrise Kingdom. We could do an entire podcast about Bill Murray's characters in Wes Anderson (laughs) movies. Because he's been in every one except for the first one. Yeah, he's 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 prolific under Wes Anderson. I don't know what it is about those two. I want to see him... In a, I just want to be that fly on the wall listening to talk. What do they talk about? What is it that is yeah. so magnetic between those two? I just get the feeling that if you are, if you hang out with Wes Anderson, mm-hmm. he's a creative dynamo. And he's just somebody that you want to be around and that you want to create with. Do you think that he just 
he looks at people and he mm-hmm. immediately has a character like he boils you down yeah. to what you are and then boop, you're in <laughs> and it's like it's just like Jason Schwartzman's character in this movie Oh, all of these yep. characters are fictional, but no, they're mm-hmm. really, Wes Anderson is stealing souls from the real <laughs> world and inserting them into his film. Well, it's beautiful. It's like a Shakespearean theater company. Like he keeps bringing back the same players, Jason Schwartzman, Owen Wilson, Angelica Houston, uh, you know, Bill Murray, um, now Edward Norton. You know, there's he he picks people up, and then he keeps uh, Adrian Brody is you know a recurring character now. So he he picks people up, and he keeps using them over and over, which is really interting and kind of great. That's a prof- because it, it's an old playwright. It's an old traveling, you know, theater troupe. Yeah, which I think is really cool. It's a profound statement. I happened yeah. to live where there was a permanent company in Rhode Island for their uh-huh. theater and I went to a couple productions a year and when you'd see your favorite characters on stage doing a new role it was exciting you loved uh-huh. seeing those same people in a new role it was there yeah. there's something about that continuity that is uh it's comforting and it's similar mm-hmm. to I mean Wes Anderson is Steve Zissou. These shows are his Belafonte. <laughs> he is Max yeah. writing these plays and getting his friends roles in his place. And if he yeah. passes you in the hallway and says, uh, I'm trying to remember what he says to his gal pal. We, I mean, he just, he casts her as he's walking by. Um, right, right, that is Wes Anderson. Yeah. He in, in Rushmore. Yeah. He walked by Adrian Brody yeah. <laughs> behind some Take studio. Take off your glasses. Hey, take off your glasses. Yeah, put on these. I can't see anything. The prescription, perfect. <laughs> perfect, you're in. Yeah, loving it. I just imagine they all live in a giant mansion together. That's, uh, you know, <laughs> this is my mansion, and, and then it opens. And hipster, it opens like a child's dollhouse. <laughs> <laughs> we see Bill Murray wandering the hallways. Yeah. Oh man, well. Great conversation, man. I'm I'm really excited about this Anderson run. Yeah, it's been a ton of fun. I'm excited that I was able to take one of my least favorite movies, and yet it's still at the same time dissect it pretty, um, pretty interestingly. I like I I'm very very uh, excited to take these next three steps, these next three movies, even Moonrise Kingdom, which is a movie I hated on first watch. <laughs> so I'm ready to take the plunge. Um, and I, the, the I, I just want to leave on this because I look back now mm-hmm. I look about at my top 10 list for all the directors we've done. We've done Tarantino. Yeah. We've done Edgar Wright. We've done uh, Guillermo del Toro and we've done David Fincher. Yeah. Um, all of those directors, I picked a film that was later in their career as my favorite film. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tarantino was Inglorious Bastards. Um, Edgar Wright was uh, The World's End. Uh, Guillermo del Toro was Crimson Peak, which is his most recent movie. Uh-huh. I thought that movie was kind of phenomenal. Yeah. And then uh, David Fincher, I picked The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo over films like Zodiac and uh, Seven and Fight Club and The Social Network. So I'm interested to see this final little stretch for Wes Anderson because when you watch movies in context at least for me 
I get a interesting vibe from these later films, so I'm excited to see what's put together here. Yeah, because um, the first the first uh, few have been very strong. I'm super excited for ta- Fantastic next week. Fantastic Mr. Fox yeah. is such a fun, never seen it stop motion animation. I mean, mm-hmm. it's a it's a beautiful medium for Wes Anderson. Yeah, and he's, his next movie is going to be the, about uh, his next movie is going to be stop motion as well. That's right. There's an ad for dogs. Life of Dogs with Edward Norton. Yeah. There's not really anything <laughs> in it, the teaser. It's just... Right. I'm making a movie. There's a lot of people. My my troop is in it, so yeah. deal with it. <laughs> Surprising. Okay. Well, uh, so next week we've got the fantastic Mr. Fox, and until then, I'm Eric. I'm Levi. Cut. <laughs>